on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. In my opinion, there's two ways to actually get the zinger. Usually the best one is to listen for it, right? The witness actually says something great and then you have to end right there. You have to have the confidence to end that cross-examination and sit down because it was so good. It just made your case and you're done. You got the zinger, but you had to leave off a few questions. And that's hard for lawyers because we have more things we want to say. Sometimes you have to get out of your own way in terms of you're enjoying it too much. You're you're being too uh, aggressive. You're being too insistent, you know, that repeated. But didn't you say, didn't you say, and didn't you say, like the proverbial dog with the bone and you just don't let it go. Uh, you, you, you've got to know how to read all of those things and to identify the moment at, I've made my point, I've achieved my objective, I can move on. That was Judge Amy Hanley and Cheryl Brown-Watley. And this is May the Record Reflect. Welcome to episode 32 of the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan. Joining me today are NEDA faculty members, Judge Amy Hanley and Cheryl Brown-Watley. Judge Hanley spent the first 15 years of her career as an assistant attorney general and first assistant county attorney in Kansas, leading high-level crime prosecutions in cases involving crimes against women, crimes against children, and digital crimes. Since 2016, she has served as a district court judge in Lawrence, Kansas. Judge Hanley is a member of NEDA's Next Gen Faculty Class of 2014, which is our program where the leadership potential of young faculty members is cultivated through an intense year of teaching at our advocacy programs across the country to build their skills in training and mentoring. Joining Judge Hanley is Cheryl Brown-Watley. Cheryl is an inaugural faculty member of the UNT Dallas College of Law. She began her career as an assistant U.S. attorney in Connecticut, representing the United States in civil litigation. She later transferred to the USA's office for the Northern District of Texas, where she served as chief of the Economic Crime Unit. Cheryl is the author of the NEDA case file, Marine Rescue Specialist, the Riverboat Queen, and has taught for NEDA for over 30 years. Now, you might be wondering why this episode is called the Tense Trio. And you know, I was wondering that myself, which is why it's the first question I pose to our guests. Here's our interview. Judge Hanley, what do you mean by the tense trio? I'm talking about objections, cross-examination, and impeachment. The three parts of the trial with the highest level of tension or anxiety, at least until lawyers develop a better comfort level with those skills. So what is the element that these three parts of the trial all have in common? Well, they all have a need for the lawyers to react very quickly, but they also seem 
the most confrontational, almost accusatory, because when you think about objections, you're essentially saying you're doing something wrong. And with impeachment, you're calling the witness a liar. And then, of course, on cross-examination, it's oppositional by nature. So it's the highest level of confrontation and that anxiety level for the lawyers in trial that make them the tense trio. Yeah, it's tough to feel like you're in the hot seat for sure. So let's dive in and figure out how to make this a little bit better. Cheryl Brown-Watley, what makes lawyers tense about doing objections? I think the challenge with objections, building on what Judge Hanley just said, is that you're interrupting. You're standing up and you're commanding attention to you and you're trying to stop the witness from speaking. And all of a sudden, all of the attention is on you And you have to make sure you have a good objection. Do you have a legal basis for that objection? What will you actually be able to keep the evidence and the testimony out? Or will you be drawing attention to that which is harmful? And will the jury be looking at you thinking that, why are you trying to hide something from them? And you've got to make this decision to make the objection within seconds. And that's a lot to have run through your brain, particularly if you're in a courtroom that requires you to cite the number of the rule of evidence that you're relying upon. So if you had the added burden of I've got to have the right rule number, because if I use the wrong rule number, the judge is going to yell at me. You have a lot going on in your head for a split second decision. And for the less experienced lawyers, they often tell us that the psychological hurdle of the interruption itself is hard to get over. The idea that they have to interrupt somebody while they're speaking, as Cheryl says, just seems almost rude to them. So we remind them, you know, it's not like a conversation where you're interrupting someone. This is a courtroom. It's a formal setting. That's part of the profession. And it's expected by jurors. They've all seen enough television now to understand what an objection is. So you just have to move past that. And I think also sometimes it's awkward because you have to stand up. So if you've been sitting at council table writing, all of a sudden you have to push your chair back, stand up and kind of wave and say, look at me. And that's that's all very awkward. It's not what we teach people is the way to be polite. Uh, And so you're literally jumping out of your seat trying to say, stop, stop. So when you were a new lawyer, how did you tune your ear to instantly recognize that opposing counsel had just said something that you need to object to. I will start with you, Judge Hanley. Well, I used to carry around a list of common objections, the most common objections that I would make in the courtroom, just to have that phrase at hand until I had done a better job of memorizing those and, of course, the rules if I had to cite that in front of a particular judge. And even bigger help to me when I was a younger lawyer was to take less notes and listen more. Because when you're listening, you can actually catch the objections that you need to make. And it's easier and quicker to get up out of your seat and make that objection. But I had to balance that with being able to take notes, but often just listening gave me a better chance of objecting and lodging the right objection. I might. I think one of the things that really helps is preparation. When you know what that witness is supposed to be testifying about, what their information is going to be, you know what to anticipate. 
So for example, if you anticipate the other lawyer is going to try to get them to testify about a conversation, you know to be listening for that. And so that you know in advance that might be a hearsay objection. So you can help yourself by your preparation and, and identifying and then having it there on your notes that that's a conversation. That's an out-of-court statement hearsay. I completely agree. You can prepare in advance for objections, at least somewhat, right? That list of common objections, I mean, that was preparation. And I know what the evidence is going to be. If it's that big of an issue, I might even file a motion in limine. But if I know that the judge hasn't yet ruled on that motion or we haven't addressed it pre-trial, I'm going to know what those problem areas are as an attorney. So I'm going to have those objections planned out. Absolutely. Cheryl, are there ever times when you should not object? I think that when you start objecting to things like the form of the question uh, and the judge is just going to tell the attorney to rephrase it, you really, what have you accomplished? You've pointed it out. Um, they get to ask the question. They'll get the answer anyway. And then you run the risk of looking like you're trying to uh, just kind of pick on the opposing counsel. So I think that with everything, with objections, just like everything in the courtroom, you have to know what your purpose is. If you can't figure out a, a purpose, a strategic reason for the objection, then you probably shouldn't make it. I would follow that up with don't object if it doesn't hurt you. Judge Hanley, I want to get back to something that you said earlier about how you learn to know the federal rules of evidence. I'm always fascinated by talking to really experienced trial attorneys and judges who know the FRE cold. And so I'd like to know how you came to be um, such an expert yourself. I had a great law school professor like Cheryl, right, that taught me the rules of evidence. And I really did have a good instructor. And what that led to was a love of the subject matter. So I had a lot of commitment to it because I enjoyed it. But the more trials that you do, the better you become at evidence and being able to apply it. It's one thing to know the rules. It's a whole different thing to be able to figure out exactly which rule and which objection you need to make in the moment. So it sounds like exposure and experience are the key. Absolutely. Okay, so I feel like the first of the tense trio is behind us. So let's move on to the second, which is cross. Judge Hanley, what makes lawyers tense about doing cross-examination? This is another high-conflict area, and the thing that most lawyers tense up about is controlling the witness. So I always make the comparison to herding cats because I have cats. So it is literally the same kind of thing when you are trying to control a witness. I think one of the reasons that lawyers might get tense about cross-examination is because they don't really know what to do. They've just heard this testimony from the witness, and if it's not a civil case and then they haven't had the opportunity for a full deposition, it's like, what do I focus on? And so again, I think preparation helps ease that tension because you know, okay, these are the points that I need to address. Or here's how the witness can act and actually has good information for me. But you, if, if you're sitting there and just for the first time hearing the witness, 
it, it, it is naturally tense because you're figuring out what do I do now? How do I respond? Uh, so it's critical that the lawyer prepare in advance so that you can you, you make it easier for yourself. You give yourself a prop every time you prepare. Cross has the potential to be that cinematic moment that really makes you feel like a trial lawyer, but certainly not at the very beginning of your career. Cheryl, can you tell me how many trials you think it took for you to get to that point where you had that cinematic moment? Well, I wanted a Perry Mason moment when I was trying to get this bank robber to confess that she was the lady on the videotape robbing the bank. And the judge finally pulled me aside and said, you do realize that's only TV that that does not happen in real life. Uh, you know, but I think when you become comfortable with controlling someone, and I think the judge's point on that is well taken, then you learn how to say, look, this is the story I want you to tell. I'm going to say the facts and you're going to say yes. And together we will walk down this path. But that's not what we tell people to do as natural interaction. So once you get comfortable with being kind of, I am going to dictate and you're going to agree. Unfortunately, I think my nature was a little bit more comfortable with that. I'm very bossy and I love to tell people what to do. And so it came more quickly, I think, than it does for most uh, well, well-mannered lawyers. But it is a function of, look, I'm telling you how it happened and you're going to say yes. For me, it was at least a couple dozen trials before I really felt like I was satisfied with my level of cross-examination. Now, think about that. I mean, 24 trials is a substantial number. A lot of attorneys won't ever do 24 trials, but that's the truth as far as my comfort level. It could also have been uh, my background. I'm a prosecutor. We do more direct than uh, we did cross-examination, but a couple of dozen, and it takes you a little bit to get to that comfort level because you need to learn the method. And that's what got me there was learning the method, right? The leading questions, short questions, using head notes. Once I learned the method, then I was prepared, more prepared to deal with whatever control issues that particular witness might have. Judge Hanley, could you complete this sentence for me? Cross is X percent preparation and Y percent spur of the moment. 25% prep and 75% spur of the moment. And I go back to my comments about the method because you can prepare, you can make sure that you're organized and you know the, the topic areas that you want to cover and you have the order that you're going to cover those things, but you're always going to have to adjust in the moment and you're going to have to control that witness and you won't know, you won't know exactly how that's going to play out until the witness is in front of you. But the method, the leading questions, keeping them short and different witness control techniques that you add to your quiver over time, that's what gives you the method that you can rely on for that 75% spur of the moment. Cheryl, would you say that the ratio is about the same for you or different? You know, my experience has been that it's different. And the reason I say that is I firmly have learned that preparation makes me able to tackle things that are sometimes even the unexpected. And so, again, preparation 
even with identifying the issues and then literally writing out the questions. So you can see, I call them the yellow brick road. And so that I can say, okay, this is a yellow brick, it's gonna take me. And so I can move my bricks around if I need to, but I have in my mind how I want it to go and what those steps are that are going to take me. Now, invariably there's going to be something that's happened in the courtroom that's gonna change my plan, right? There's going to be something that is the spur of the moment. Um, but I will tell you the thing that frightens me most is when I have someone on direct and I've listened to them and I think I've got a, ah, gotcha, that you've stepped into some kind of trap and it's going to be, I'm going to be able to use it as a gotcha moment on cross-examination. And I may not have thought it all the way through. And I get caught up in the spur of the moment. And all of a sudden you're trying to backpedal. You're trying to say, oh, I've got to salvage it. So I'm really afraid of the spur of the moment because it, it, it can end up backfiring on you. Um, but I do think you've got to be able to pivot. You've got to be able to uh, anticipate or, or deal with that, which you have not anticipated. Next question is um, about getting out of your own way during cross. Um, we've said that cross is one of those tense trio items. And I'd like to know what is the psychological hurdle that needs to be overcome here? Um, Cheryl, start with you. You know, I think that if you um, are afraid you're being too aggressive, then you are going to restrict yourself and you're not going to develop a comfort level in asking the questions. And so I think it's particularly incumbent uh, to be comfortable with where you want to go and then you'll be able to figure out how to get there. If you actually approach it almost conversational with the witness, although you're telling rather than letting them participate in the conversation, you're going to make your points. You know what you want, where you want to go. Um, you know, and then the other hand, it could be you get you like the confrontation, right? Sometimes you have to get out of your own way in terms of you're enjoying it too much. You're you're being too uh aggressive you're being too insistent you know that repeated but didn't you say didn't you say and didn't you say like the proverbial dog with the bone and you just don't let it go uh you, you you've got to know how to read all of those things and to identify the moment at i've made my point i've achieved my objective i can move on i agree that we can get way too caught up in thinking about tone and demeanor on cross as if that's the whole ball of wax and it's not at all it's about the facts it's about your questions think of you know being very workmanlike in cross instead of the scene from a few good men because that's not what a good cross examination looks like so that's what we think about we think about our tone and our demeanor and we can get caught up in that instead of preparing with the questions and the points that we want to make but in addition to a psychological hurdle i have discovered that there's also a physical hurdle to cross-examination and that tone and demeanor and what i'm talking about there is that adrenaline rush that we get from confrontation. And if you've been in trial and you've done cross-examination, you know what I'm talking about. The blood is pumping, the energy is coursing through you. And I've heard communication specialists 
talk about this and how we really need to burn off some of that excess energy. And one of the best suggestions I heard, or maybe it was the story of something she tried, was going into the bathroom and doing wall push-ups. And I always tell people that I wore high heels in trial and uh, tried doing two flights of stairs in those. That'll burn off some energy for you and take the adrenaline down to a manageable level because then you're normalized. Then you are more relaxed and you're not going to be as affected by that as far as your delivery for your cross-examination. And it's going to be much more effective. If I might just piggyback on that, if you're not able to leave the courtroom, if you're not able to run up the flights of stairs, I always think, you know, tactically, take a couple of seconds to get your papers together. Make it look like, you know, you need to organize things. Give yourself 20, 30 seconds before you either start asking questions or go to the podium if you're in a courtroom that uses a podium. And then the proverbial deep breath. As I teach my students, don't let anybody see you do it, right? Because that just looks weird and they think you're getting ready for a boxing ring or something. But it's okay for you to kind of just take a deep breath and you kind of say, okay, I got this. We're ready to start or whatever it is you want to tell yourself that reassures you that you are in control of the moment. You don't have to be hyper to do it, but you can be calm and you're collected and you've got this. The witness is actually wondering what you're doing and is getting kind of anxious because they've been prepped for this big cross-examination that's going to come and you're taking 15, 20 seconds. Wait a minute, you're supposed to be jumping on me. But you've allowed yourself to relax and to get into at least the first few questions with some peacefulness before you really start jumping into your cross. Oh, the power of the pause, right? And, and within the examination too, between your different head notes or your chapters, don't be afraid of that pause. It draws all the attention on you, which is great drama and engagement. And the jury is watching everything you do. So don't be afraid to take that moment and to have that pause. I, I think that's a great tip as far as not getting sucked into the, the panic or the, the in the moment mode. I've got to get up there and get this started right now that Cheryl's talking about. You're both longtime NETA instructors. And I am wondering if in your teaching for us, whether it's in the in the classroom for Nita, or in your case, Cheryl, at law school, do women have a harder time with cross-examination, do you think? I, I certainly do. Um, I think that at both extremes, the idea of being uh, anxious about appearing aggressive, so it may kind of foster uh, a greater degree of timidity than would be there naturally. I don't want to look like I'm being rude. I don't want it to look like I'm being domineering. And on the other end, you know, quite frankly, I, I come across very domineering. I come across very controlling. And so how do I pull it down? How do you achieve that proper balance? And with some witnesses, they need the domineering. Some witnesses need to be taught that they will answer the question that is asked, not the question they want to talk about. And so you have to, I, I think during the course of a cross-examination, 
women take on many different persona. You, you start out nice, but you let them know you can be not nice, and then you can go back to being nice again. But you have to be aware that you're doing all of that. And that's not something we really focus on, I, at least my experience. Women don't. I think women attorneys worry about tone and demeanor so much more than a male attorney who's going to do a cross-examination. So I think that affects how we view cross-examination. And one thing we have to acknowledge here is that there is some bias for women in the courtroom for things like cross-examination. And sometimes that does come from an unfair place, right? A place of bias. So we need to acknowledge that. But what I would say is if you are examining your actions on cross-examination, meaning making sure that you're not being reactionary to the witness, right? We don't want to react to them. We want them reacting to us because we're in control of the examination. If you make sure it's not reactionary, then it's not emotion driving it. It's simply the point that you are trying to make, which that's, as Cheryl says, dependent on how the witness is behaving for you. Maybe they need a specific tone. Maybe the facts drive you there. But if it's a purposeful decision that this is how I am going to approach this cross-examination, or at least this portion of it, then you are conducting an effective cross-examination. And don't worry so much about the tone. One of the things that I have seen, fortunately on rare occasions, is where a male witness will say something sexist, will say something rude, will say something insulting uh, to the female attorney. And there's like that gasp in the courtroom and everybody's waiting to see how she's going to handle it. Because it happens and it happens so quickly that perhaps the judge may not have even reacted yet. And all attention is on that attorney to how are you going to excuse, reprimand, uh, confront, how are you going to handle that? And so that's always out there is this really rare possibility, but it's one of the things you have to kind of perhaps to some degree anticipate. I just want to interrupt today's episode to quickly say that the NIDA Women in Trial program actually sold out last week. The good news is our friends at Perkins Coie, who are hosting the program at their beautiful law office in downtown Seattle, confirmed that they have the space available to accommodate another 14 women, which means we've reopened the doors for registration. The program will be held September 21st through 24th with Judge Hanley at the helm. Her faculty includes Cheryl Brown-Watley and a cohort of fabulous, experienced female trial lawyers, judges, and law professors, all there to help you push your trial skills to the max. And as if that's not enough in itself, I can tell you on a personal note that Seattle is a gorgeous destination. It's stunning in September. Those 50 shades of green turn to red, gold, orange, and purple. The law office of Perkins Coie is just three blocks from Puget Sound and four blocks from Pike Place Market. It's the perfect location to have all those iconic Seattle experiences. So if this program sounds right up your alley, don't wait another minute because those spots are going to disappear quickly. 
Visit Nita.org and type Women in Trial into the search bar at the top of the webpage to sign up. We would love to see you in Seattle. But for now, let's get back to our interview. Everyone hopes to end their cross with a flourish, with a great zinger. It's another of those cinematic moments that trial lawyers dream of. So what exactly are the fundamentals of the zinger? If I could start with you, Judge Hanley. Well, first, I better warn everybody that it's not always going to happen. (laughs) Uh, I sure wish I could tell you that I ended at least half of my cross-examinations with the singer, but that's probably not true. In my opinion, there's two ways to actually get the singer. Usually the best one is to listen for it, right? The witness actually says something great, and then you have to end right there. You have to have the confidence to end that cross-examination and sit down because it was so good. It just made your case and you're done. You got the zinger, but you had to leave off a few questions. And that's hard for lawyers because we have more things we want to say. So listen for it and end there. The other way that you can get a zinger perhaps is to plan it. But that takes you coming up with a really important point about your case and then making sure that you can place it at the end of the cross-examination and it reinforces your theory. And you have to kind of save that and make sure that it's not something that they can stand right back up and rehabilitate on. So that's a more difficult call. They're always better when it happens in the moment and then you have the confidence to sit down after you hear it. I think it's when you have a question, I I call them the no-lose questions, that when the answer is one that the witness does not want to answer, and that becomes obvious to everyone. And I agree with Judge Hanley that sometimes you get that in preparation. Sometimes that will say, okay, he has said this. He's this. I can prove it's a lie. I can show it. It's And so I'm going to, uh, you know, display for everyone, demonstrate to everyone how uh, not believable this witness is. But sometimes, and this is where I, I, I'm not as gifted as Judge Hanley because I have to take notes. So if I can use their words back to them, and particularly, and we're going to talk about impeachment in a moment, but if I can quote them, and I can make them disavow what they said on direct and make them admit that's all. I, 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 that's, I call it the drop the mic moment. That's when you just want to close your book, stand there, say everybody got that point. Okay, now we're done. Can we go directly to the verdict form? <laughs> yeah, if you get that impeachment moment, I completely agree. That, that's enough. Done. M- mic drop for sure. Well, that leads us right into the third of the tense trio, which is impeachment. Cheryl, what makes lawyers tense about impeaching a witness? So I think it is this idea of confrontation, but I think also what makes it tense is sometimes lawyers don't set it up well. And if you don't set up an impeachment well, you do fall flat on your face. And so I think there's this fear, if you have ever seen anyone not do it well, and how it doesn't work and it's embarrassing and awkward, you, you, you're concerned that that might be you. Um, and, you know, it's always, well, they can explain it away. They'll have some reason for why it's different. 
So I think it's critical that lawyers understand when impeachment works and that they have gotten the three tools that we talk about, the three C's, uh, for effective impeachment. It's the technique and remembering it in the moment because these are unexpected. Impeachments aren't planned. You have to listen for it. And when you hear it, you have to remember these technical steps. And lawyers hate all the technical stuff. We didn't certainly didn't go to law school because we were any good at math. So things like admitting an exhibit, impeaching that have these technical qualities, they make lawyers tense because in the middle of their advocacy, they have to stop and think about the steps and do them right. There are methods. I'll come back to my discussion about learning the method. It's just like cooking. If you learn the method for certain things, you don't always have to have a recipe. I think impeachment is the same way. And if you learn the method and you have that in the back of your mind, you're ready for any inconsistency or omission that might happen. And then you can impeach the witness. And if I can just follow up to our moment on what Judge Hanley said, lawyers are listening to testimony. And so we hear something and we think it's inconsistent with what the person has said before, but we have to have the precise words of what they've just said in court. And that isn't always possible because it's not, I mean, sometimes now in courts, you may have the visual transcript, the simultaneous transcript playing on your screen. But if you don't have that, you're going, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like what he said before, but I don't know the exact words. And so when I go pull up what he said before, I can't really measure it against what they've said in the courtroom. And so I think that makes you feel very um, uneasy as well. Because you think it, you think it's a contradictory, and that's where the steps are so important, where you confirm what they have said in the courtroom. So uh, I agree with Judge Hanley that the technique is really critical on something like that. Cheryl, you mentioned the three C's. Could you describe what you mean by that? Certainly. Uh, the first step is confirm. You want to make certain that you have heard the witness correctly. And you want them to really repeat that phrase, which you think is contradictory. So you get up and you say, did I just hear you tell the jury? And whatever the phrase is, whatever the testimony is, you have them confirm that you've heard it correctly. Then you credit the source of the impeaching statement. Well, you gave a deposition. It was under oath. Or you were interviewed by the police. You were giving them accurate information. You knew they were going to rely upon them. You get him or her to acknowledge that what they said before was true. It was correct. It was what they were saying happened at that time. And then you confront them. You've got two different versions. You've got what they've said there in the courtroom. You've got what they said on the prior uh, situation, the prior period. And so you confront that we have two different statements without asking the question, which do we believe? You know, do we believe you then or do we believe you now? I mean, you, you know, but you confront and say, well, you said this. You said the light was green. That's what you said. That's your zinger. You said it was green. Okay, it was green. I'm done. All right. So confirm, credit, and confront. Those are the three C's. 
Is there anything that either of you can think of that would cause an impeachment to backfire? We kind of touched on it lightly at the beginning of the discussion of impeachment, but I just want to make sure that we're catching everything. I think the first step, that's where I see it backfire, because Cheryl was talking about how you have to, in the moment, know exactly what you heard and contrast that with exactly what was said before. And it's almost never perfectly inconsistent. And half the time I see lawyers, they think they heard something inconsistent, but when they actually go dig out the transcript, it's not inconsistent. You know, so that's the impeachment that looks like, you know, one moment, Your Honor, never mind, I'll just move on. When they get back to the transcript and look and they realize, oh, that's actually not inconsistent or I'm not going to be able to make a clean impeachment. So the fix for that is first knowing your facts really, really well, but then, you know, your transcript, your deposition transcripts and your other materials should look like our blue books from law school and be tabbed out to the nines because you have to know exactly where to find that information when you're ready to impeach and not be fumbling around for it. I think the other problem area is oftentimes lawyers want the impeachment to work, that they don't read the second sentence. They don't read the thing that the witness said either right after or alternatively right before. So you pull out that which seems to be a contradiction, but really if you read the full paragraph, it's the same explanation. You can't just focus on the five words. And so there's a real inclination to to want to have the gotcha moment, to want to be able to say, oh, I've caught you in this contradiction that you want to say, I just want to look at this part of the paragraph and not the full paragraph. And what happens then is the other counsel has the right to go up and say, well, let's look at the whole paragraph. Let's look at what you said right before that. And you have not only undermined your impeachment, you have really impaired your credibility. You have made it look like you were trying to pull something over on the jury and to kind of hide something from them. Uh, And I just think that's a a recipe for disaster. And that's so important because it it might be the most important thing you have as an advocate is your credibility in front of that jury, maybe even more important than the facts, because you have to have the rapport and they have to trust you. So if you're going to if you're going to take the big swing to call the witness a liar, you have to be right about it. You, You can't make that accusation, so to speak, in front of the jury. And then you didn't give the whole context. Because as Cheryl says, now you have a credibility problem, which is almost impossible to overcome at a trial. Judge Hanley, I always love to have judges on the podcast so that I can ask them to share insider intel with the lawyers who will perhaps argue before them. So this next question is for you. What is the most frequent mistake you see counsel make during impeachment in your courtroom? the first step of confirming or pinning the witness down. So they hear the inconsistency and they don't actually take the time to confirm that it is an inconsistent statement and reinforce that in front of the jury. So think about it like this. You're you're going along through your cross-examination. The jury's paying attention, but when that big lie, 
I'm calling it a lie. You know, we can soft pedal. It's an inconsistency. When that inconsistency happens, you know it immediately because you know your case really well. The jury doesn't know it. I might know it on the bench and you need to make sure that I know it so that you have that moment of theater and the drama and it's impressed upon the jury as to what they just heard. Let me make sure that I understood you, officer. The light at the intersection was green. You just told us the light at the intersection was green. I'm going to pin the witness down. I'm going to make sure that I've highlighted that testimony. And as I do that, I'm doing one more thing. I'm giving them their last chance to back out. I'm being fair in front of the jury. I'm, I'm saying, is that really what your testimony is? And are you sticking to it? So I see that that first step missed all the time because you're in such a hurry and you're so excited to get to the impeachment, you just gloss over it if, if you actually do it at all. So slow your roll. Slow your roll. Cheryl, what do you need to do during impeachment to ensure opposing counsel is unable to rehab their witness? I think it's all of the things that we've been talking about, and that is making sure that the statement they've given in the courtroom has been confirmed, as Judge Hanley called it, that you've got the witness pinned down to that precise point. Um, and the more that point is is the exact opposite, the light was green rather than red, uh, you know, it said stop instead of go, the more they are directly opposite, the less opportunity has for the opposing counsel to rehabilitate the witness. If it's something that's just kind of a matter of judgment, you know, was it very fast or was it simply fast? You said it was fast over here, but today it's very fast. Those types of uh, inconsistencies and contradictions allow opposing counsel to come up and give the witness the opportunity to explain. And we want to make certain that the subject on which you've been doing the impeachment does not allow room for explanation. It was either red or it was green. And you've said both of them. So now your testimony on this point doesn't matter. Um, so you just want to make sure that there isn't opportunity for explanation. You want to make sure that you're using the witness's exact words. That's the easiest rehabilitation ever. If you tweak the words just a little bit, a different adjective, phrase it just a little differently, you're not going to have a proper impeachment and it's going to be a lot easier for counsel to stand up and explain that on redirect. Well, thank you both for this very interesting discussion on the tense trio and i hope that it makes our listeners feel a little less tense when they need to object cross-examine or impeach at trial as a bonus i wanted to talk about something that's really important to nita as educators and that's mentorship it is really crucial when you're doing challenging and often quite consequential work to have mentors in your life and though we often think of mentoring as being important just early in your career, careers do change. You go from being a prosecutor to a judge, for example, or from a prosecutor into private practice, or maybe even a law professor 
So the need for mentors or to create your own, what I like to call board of directors, lasts the entire length of your legal career. But absent a formal mentoring program through your office, they might actually be kind of hard to find these mentors. Judge Hanley, how do you recommend listeners find a mentor they can lean on for advice and role modeling? Well, I won't hesitate a second to urge you to take a NIDA program because that is a great way to find a mentor. Uh, the faculty for these programs are all experienced trial lawyers, and we love to stay connected with the participants. And especially the NIDA Women in Trial program is built around the whole concept of mentoring and networking in addition to enhancing your trial skills. So I would encourage you to find that training program that helps you surround yourself with lawyers that you can call on in the moment when these issues arise. And I, I mean literally in the middle of trial. I have done that. If you're interested in doing any kind of courtroom work, I suggest you go watch trials, go watch court proceedings. And then after that proceeding, if you're impressed by that lawyer, reach out even right then and there in the courtroom and say, I've, I've enjoyed watching you. I'm learning so much from you. Might I talk with you about this case? Because essentially mentoring is a relationship and you want to show that person that you value from either from what you've observed or seen in their teaching at NIDA or what have you. You want some one-on-one -on -one time and that you value and respect their experience and what they may have to offer. I strongly, you know, I'm as shy and as timid as they come. I'm all the way introverted on the Myers-Briggs scale. So I don't know that I could ever do that. But boy, I think that is the best skill that anyone can develop for themselves. Just be able to reach out to someone and say, can, can I listen to you talk? Tell me about things because you will learn from every conversation. I'm introverted as well, but I have trained myself to make that phone call, the cold call, right? Where it's like, who is this calling me? I did it all the time. And I'm so happy to tell you that I was never turned down. People always want to help. And if I might add, you can do the same thing with judges. If you're going to appear in front of me all the time, that's not going to be a mentorship that will work. Uh, based on appropriateness. But if you come to my courtroom and you watch or you go to the courtroom of any judge and you think, I've heard about her. I've heard about her background. She definitely knows what she's doing. I'm going to ask her some pointers. I'm going to call her administrative assistant and set up a meeting. They're going to set up that meeting for you. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be flattered that you asked to do that and happy to share some time with you. So you just have to not be afraid to reach out. So that begs the question, Judge, who have been your mentors in your career? They were both people that were outside of my office. And I think that's important because the people that are in your office and work with you, you can vent to them. Uh, they're a good sounding board for the issues that you're dealing with on a daily basis. But people who can take you beyond your current level and suggest other opportunities for you and see you in bigger roles 
those are mentors and they're usually outside your uh, agency or wherever you're working. So for me, it was two lawyers, especially, and a particular woman lawyer who was running, I think she was second in charge at one of the DA's office. So it wasn't like she, she didn't have a ton of things to do, but she specifically called and said, I think you'd be great for this leadership role. You want to give it a try. And I hadn't even considered it before. I didn't think of myself as somebody who could do it. And her vote of confidence in me alone pushed me to it and made a huge difference in my career. So somebody that was looking out for me and I I didn't even know it and took the time to tell me, you ought to be looking into these roles and, and doing more. And Cheryl, have you had mentors throughout your career? I was thinking about that because the irony is, is I began my legal career at a point when there were not that many women and certainly not that many African-American women practicing law. So when I think of mentors, I think of it very differently than I do with respect to my students. Uh, but I was very fortunate when I started as a federal prosecutor that there were several federal judges who would allow us to come and talk with them and be in their chambers. So after I did a trial, I could go down and visit with them and, and get their thoughts about how I had performed and, uh, you know, courtroom etiquette and demeanor and things of that nature. Um, but unfortunately, I never really had the, you know, senior partner mentor because I was a solo practitioner. And when I was out on my own, it was more a function of, developing colleagues who might be able to brainstorm issues with me, but they were my contemporaries. And I think if I've had anything that I would identify as a void in my career as a lawyer developing and gaining experience, it, it was the absence of an individual to whom I could point and say, you know, that was my mentor. That was the person who I really trusted always had, um, you know, kind of an eye out for what would be my best career development. So I really encourage everyone to try to find multiple people who are willing to give you insight and help you make sure that you're asking the right questions for what you want to achieve with your career. Judge Hanley, you mentioned the NIDA Women in Trial program, and I know that you are the program director of that um, course, which is coming up in Seattle in September. And I wanted to give you just a moment to tell us a little bit about what to expect at the program. Well, thanks for asking further details. I'm very excited about it. And Cheryl will be out there teaching with me as a member of our faculty. We started the program last year and we went online. So Cheryl and I were both thrilled at the enrollment and the excitement and enthusiasm, even online. Uh, we really, we did not suffer from Zoom fatigue. We enjoyed every minute of it. So this year we get to be on site and we will be teaching trial skills and we will be focusing on the tense trio as part of the skills that we talk about and digging deeper because we know that women trial lawyers ask about these skills all the time. They have the most questions when it comes to cross and objections and impeachment. And again, we have to look at it through a little bit different lens and make sure that you are 
listening and giving feedback from the point of view of somebody who's been there in your exact shoes so they can ask us questions as women trial lawyers who've been there and done it. And I just can't say enough good things about my impressive team of faculty. They have diversity of background, practice area. Uh, they come from all over the country volunteering their time to train and mentor other NIDA women in trial. So I can't wait for September. And you'll be there with us too, Marcy. I will indeed, and I can't wait. Um, I, there's nothing I love more at, at NIDA than attending a program and watching attendees come in on the first day and they check in and they're kind of nervous and a little tentative and they're not sure what they've just signed up for. Um, but then by the end of the week, they have just blossomed into this newfound self-assurance um, and confidence in, in their skills and their ability to better take on the challenges on behalf of their clients. So it's a very exciting program and I'm looking forward to it. And if I might add, the women who participated in our Zoom version were so committed to the work. They were work. They their questions were insightful. Their willingness to repeat. Their wanting to get better at their craft, and that was so energizing. And it made the program so enjoyable because we're not just teaching. We are learning from. Uh, the participants and they, and you can see them, the self-assurance that you were talking about, Marcy, you can see it in their faces uh, as they're beginning to feel it. And so it really is a wonderful experience. It is. So if you're interested in learning more about that, I will be sure to put the uh, link for the program in the show notes. Well, thank you both very much. Thank you for having us. It's always a pleasure to spend an hour or so talking about trial techniques and trial advocacy, which is one of my greatest passions. Yeah, talking about trials can sometimes be more fun than actually being in them. <laughs> so thank you for this opportunity. A very special thanks to Judge Amy Hanley and Cheryl Brown-Watley for sharing their incredible insights into the tense trio of objections, cross-examination, and impeachment. We hope you learned a thing or two or three. And if so, one of the ways other trial lawyers can find this podcast is through the rating system on Apple. So if you liked the episode, please help spread the word and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You may also share your thoughts by emailing us at customerservice at nita.org. Whichever way you choose, we would love to hear from you. I will be back in a few weeks with another episode. Until then, have a great month. May the Record Reflect is a NITA Studio 71 production. NITA, we are advocacy-enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.